Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we remember in a very special way the cross of Christ. The cross stands literally at the very crux, the very center point of history, the history of the universe. It is here at the cross that we see God pouring out his burning anger against our sin pouring out his righteous wrath against our unrighteousness, but pouring it out not on us, but on his own beloved son. Here at the cross, we see Jesus suffering the hellish agony that he did not deserve, suffering the torments of hell in our place. And do you see Jesus hanging there in your place. Jesus took time to prepare for the cross. He spent all his life preparing for this suffering. He suffered all his life preparing for this suffering. He suffered humiliation when he, the Lord and creator of the universe, was conceived as a human being in a sinful mother's womb. He suffered when he was born in the noisy, dirty animal shelter in Bethlehem. He suffered during all his life as he grew up like a tender plant, having no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He suffered when he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He suffered when Satan hurled all the forces of the kingdom of darkness against him in one vicious attack after another. And he suffered when he came to his own, and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He suffered as the impending weight of the cross pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden of Gethsemane. He suffered when he was betrayed by one disciple and abandoned by all the others. He suffered when he was condemned to death by the leaders of the people of God. And he was spat upon, blindfolded, beaten. He suffered as he looked into the eyes of Peter who denied him. He suffered throughout a night of a thousand indignities, and he suffered when God's people chose to put the life giver to death and to set a murderer free. He suffered as the very people he had came, he had come to save, lusted for his blood. He suffered as the Romans tortured and mocked him. He suffered as weakened by countless hours of physical and psychological torture, he stumbled towards Golgotha under the awful weight of the cross. He suffered as he was stripped of his clothes and brutally nailed to the wood set between two criminals. He suffered as those criminals joined with the leaders of God's people to jeer at him and to heap insults on him. 
he suffered as the very creation he had made by the power of his word turned its back on him, as the sun that he created refused to shine upon him, leaving him in darkness. And there on the cross, lifted up between heaven and earth and rejected by both, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. And he drinks it to the very last drop. And as he reaches the very bottom of the pit, as he comes to the very climax of the agony of his suffering, he senses the horror of hell, the terrifying feeling of the absence of God's gracious presence. And that wrenches from him the cry, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Now, one of the astonishing things about Jesus and all his suffering is how carefully he continued to fulfill the law and the scriptures from the cross. In his pain, he keeps the fifth commandment as he makes gracious provision for his mother after his death. And from the cross, he keeps the law of love as he seeks the salvation of the criminal beside him who just moments ago was reviling him. And from the cross, he shows his undying love to his father by carefully fulfilling every word of God. John chapter 19, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. It is the same care to fulfill the word of God that leads Christ to take upon his lips the words of Psalm 22. Not all of his suffering and agony can manage to obscure in his mind the fact that he is the, the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the writings, that all the scriptures point to him and speak of him. And so we're going to go through this psalm, the first part of it. If you have your Bible open, it will help you as I go through the verses. Psalm 22 is an astonishing psalm. Some have called it the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. It's a psalm of David. It speaks of a time in which David suffered great humiliation and apparent defeat. That's the first part, verses 1 to 21, and followed that with a subsequent glorious restoration, verses 22 to verses 31, to verse 31. And it most likely refers to the time in which David was hunted down by Saul, and he suffered many setbacks and betrayals and persecutions until finally he was exalted as the king of Israel. But the colors with which David paints the situation are so vivid. They describe his humiliation and his subsequent, subsequent restoration in terms far more intense than anything that he ever really experienced. What is happening in Psalm 22 is that the Holy Spirit takes hold of David and sets in his mouth prophetic words which describe in exquisite detail the suffering 
and the subsequent exaltation of the Messiah, the great son of David. David is describing his own experience, but he does it in such a way that at the same time, he is prophesying of the suffering and exaltation of the great son of David around a thousand years after the psalm was written. And that's a testimony to the power and the glory of the Holy Spirit who inspires the words of Scripture. It's a testimony to the fundamental unity of all the inspired Scriptures, that even though Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the cross, when we read it, it's as if it was written by someone who was there, by an eyewitness, who gives you a detailed account of what happened on Golgotha. And when Jesus, in the depth of his suffering, takes the words of this psalm on his lips, he appropriates its contents for himself. And we see in this psalm that God's Messiah, God's anointed one, calls God's attention to three levels of his suffering. And after stating each one of these three levels of suffering, he cries out for deliverance. And if you have your Bible open, I'm going to be going backwards through the text. I'm going to start in the verses 12 through to 21, which is the third level of suffering. And in this third level, Jesus is describing his physical pain. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. That's how verse 12 starts. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up. In these verses 12 and 13, we see Christ on the cross in the exquisite agony of body and mind and emotions. His mockers are like brute animals. They're like violent bulls. They're like roaring lions. They're circling around him, looking for an opportunity to crush him, to gore him, to tear him apart. And you see that again in verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A company of evildoers encircles me. The Messiah is surrounded by enemies, and there is no escape. And then verse 14, I am poured out like water. That is a, a Hebrew way of saying, I am undone. I'm completely finished. I can't take any more. He has no more strength, physical, emotional, mental, to take any more. His heart cannot bear it. It is melted away. In verse 15, his strength is so reduced, so dried up that he compares it to a useless piece of dry, broken pottery lying in the dust in the hot, burning sun. And so we see Christ on the cross, his hands and feet cruelly hammered and nailed to the wood. Verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. After a day of cruel, or after a night of cruel torture, he has spent the last six hours from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, suspended between earth and heaven, crucified. One of the most painful deaths. That's where we get the English word excruciating from, because that C-R-U-C-C, Cruce 
in that word is from the Latin word for cross. An excruciating pain is an unspeakably painful pain. Those nails, about eight inches, about 20 centimeters long, crushed the nerves. There's sharp, burning pain up the entire arm. The, the way you hang on the cross, your shoulders dislocate because of the weight. Your arms are literally pulled out of their sockets. Look at verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. His back flayed and bleeding from the flogging, which was so vicious that it exposed the bones of his back. His head still smarting from that cruel crown of thorns. And hanging on that cross in such a position, every breath is torture. Every breath is excruciating agony because to get a breath, you have to pull yourself up on those dislocated arms to try to get some precious oxygen for a moment. Together with all of this suffering and torture, there is blood loss, there's lack of oxygen, and that leads to dehydration and everything that goes with that. Verse 15, my tongue sticks to my jaws, or we can translate sticks to the roof, the roof of my mouth. Jesus said, I thirst. And while Christ suffers there, his blood pounding painfully in his head, look at verses 17 and 18. People are thinking it's funny. They're staring, they're gloating, they're mocking, they're dividing his garments among them. And in that pain, in that agony, Christ calls out to God in verses 19 through to 21. Be not far off. Come quickly. Deliver my soul. Deliver my life. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. Christ suffers as true man. He is suffering as the last Adam. He calls out to his God and to his Father in his pain, but there is no answer. There is no relief from the agony. And now we go to the verses 6 through to 11 as we go backwards through the, the psalm. And in this level of suffering, Christ describes the, the pain of broken relationships, with, especially with other human beings. And we see here Christ in his pain as those who would and should be his brothers, his followers, stand by and mock him. Look at verse Six, he's scorned by mankind, despised by the people. The scripture says he came to his own, but his own received him not. He has been betrayed by a close disciple. He has been abandoned by the twelve. In every way, Christ has been disappointed and betrayed and cruelly treated by every human relationship. And even worse, those circling the cross call into question the relationship which Jesus holds most precious. Look at verse 7. They mock and ridicule Jesus' love for God. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And all of that, that betrayal 
that pain of betrayal and human cruelty. It is astonishing that in Psalm 22, there is not one word of imprecation. There is not one word in which Jesus lashes out and calls down judgment. Not one word. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There are no words of reproach. There are no words to defend himself. Psalm 22, we are allowed to look into the anguish of our Savior's soul. And in the absence of any comfort, any support from human friendship, and as his very relationship with his God and Father is called into question, Jesus cries out to God. And he appeals, look at verse 9 and verse 10, he appeals to the fact that from the moment of conception, he has belonged to God. He cries out to God because he says, Lord, your covenant promises are true and trustworthy. You've always been a faithful God. And he calls attention to that covenant relationship that he has with God. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. But there is no answer, and there is no relief from the agony. And then we move to the first five verses of our text. Jesus is experiencing the crushing consequences of sin in body, mind, and soul. He's experiencing the devastating effects of sin and destroying all human relationships. And these are terrible. These are painful. But the very worst consequence of sin, the very climax of sin's devastating results is that sin destroys man's relationship with God. And now the climax of the Messiah's suffering set before us in verses 1 and 2 is the horrifying realization that God is far away from him. And that is the essence of hell. What makes hell, hell is not necessarily the agony that is described in Scripture as, as, as if it were a liquid fire, but what makes hell, hell is the fact that God is not anywhere to be found in His grace, His love, and His mercy. Now, Jesus has spent a lifetime suffering without a word of complaint. He has spent several days being cruelly tortured, unjustly judged, but like a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. But now, after all this unspeakable anguish, pain, and agony, he comes to the terrifying realization that God is not with him. And it is this realization that presses out of Jesus that awful cry which rings throughout the universe and throughout history, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
from the worlds of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Jesus has spent his entire life serving God faithfully, loving God sincerely. His food has been to do the will of God. He knows God as his Father, and he believes implicitly in the history of redemption as he learned it from the Scriptures. You see that in in verses 3 and 4, Lord, what's going on? The fathers trusted you, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and they were rescued. They put their faith in you, God, and they were not put to shame. So Jesus knows that God is all-powerful to save his people, that God comes to the aid of his beloved children, That those who live in faith and in covenant with God, those who trust in God for deliverance will never be disappointed because every act of God in history has confirmed that and every word of Scripture has guaranteed that. And so he cries out to God on that basis, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? But there is no answer and no relief from the agony. Brothers and sisters, what what are we seeing here? What do we learn as we stand and and gaze at the cross? And I want to draw your attention to three lessons that we learn from this scene. And the first one is this, that every sinner deserves the awful terror of hell and eternal death. The wages of sin is Death, And this is what it looks like. This is what I, what you must experience in an infinite amount. This is what is owed to us and it will be paid. Either Jesus pays it in your place if you are a believer or you yourself will pay it eternally if you do not put your trust in God. So this is a call to faith. This is a call to flee from sin, to flee to the cross, to fall down before the cross and say, Jesus, take my sin. Take my suffering for me. Take my hell that I deserve in my place. It is a call to faith. And secondly, We see here on the cross, Jesus Christ, who knows the terror of death. Jesus Christ, true man. This one suffering here in Psalm 22 is a true human being. He knows what it is to to experience the terror of mortality, that that I am a person that, 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 that faces death. He faced death in the absence of God's grace and favor in the presence of his enemies. And in the suffering of Jesus, We see that God in Jesus is coming into our mortality. He is experiencing the terror of fallen sinners as they face death. 
He identifies with the suffering and the dying. And because God in Jesus has engaged in that desolation, because Jesus knows what it is to be filled with terror when there's suffering, when death is standing before us, Jesus knows what that feels like. He knows it personally, not just in his mind, not just abstractly. He's been through it. And because of that, he can comfort us when we walk now where the psalmist once walked. His suffering means that Jesus understands any suffering that you are going through or will ever go through. Whether it's psychological or emotional, spiritual, physical, whatever suffering, he has known worse pain than you could ever imagine. So brother and sister, if, if you are suffering or if you have suffered, you can find great comfort in the wounds of Jesus. As, as you sit there in pain of mind, of body and soul, you can meditate upon the wounds of your Savior and know that there is one who loves you with an eternal love, who understands exactly, maybe no one else does, but he does. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And then the third lesson that I would like to draw from this text, what are we seeing here as we look at the cross? What do we learn as we stand and gaze at the cross? We are seeing the most astonishing exchange, the, the greatest trade in, in the history of the universe. We are seeing God taking my sin, taking your sin, and nailing it to the cross. You who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We see God dealing with sin, with my sin, with your sin taking all the filth, all the pollution, all the guilt, all the shame of our sin and putting it on his son and then taking all the purity and holiness of Christ and putting it on us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Child of God, know this, that this agonizing suffering of hell that we see in the Christ and the cross means that you owe God nothing. There's nothing outstanding, not even the smallest, tiny little sin, but you are forgiven. You are clean. You are washed. You are righteous, perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. What we see here at the cross 
is the breathtaking fulfillment of that prophecy of Psalm 85. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Here at the cross, we see God maintaining his infinite justice and showing his infinite love. And he found a way to do it. And that way was to forsake his son in order to embrace his undeserving people, to love the unlovable. On the cross, Jesus humbled himself, body and soul, to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell. Then he called out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That we might be accepted by God and nevermore be forsaken by him. Jesus cried out, And there was no answer. So that when we cry out, when we cry out, my God, there is an answer. This is amazing love. Amazing love that can leave no one unmoved. Amazing love that can leave no heart untouched and no life unchanged. How can you, how can I continue to love sin? if we have a Savior that loves us so much. This is amazing love that causes us to sing with holy wonder. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amen.